All right, my name is Libby, as Chuck already said, I'm one of the pastors here. It's so lovely to see you. We're going to do the Bibles straight away, because we're just going to get straight into that. And so if you um, need a Bible, pop up your hand. Uh, if you, Anyone need a Bible? No. I presume you've all come prepared. This is good. This is good, people. It's also going to come up on the screen as well, so you'll be able to see that. All right, I can guarantee that everyone at least at one point in their life can relate to this story, and that is when you are hungry and you go into a supermarket. It's a bad idea, isn't it? I'm getting some nods, yes. It's like putting a toddler in a sweet shop and expecting a three-course gourmet meal. It's not going to happen. It's just not a good idea. It's not smart. You know, you go over that threshold and your stomach takes over and all of a sudden you're drawn to the Rolo yogurts and you've got four of them in your basket before you've even started. And then you've got <coughs> the... Um, hot cross buns which are 24p and they were down from 90p and so you think they're going straight in my basket as well and then you think also that bottle of wine six quid down from seven pounds bargain also in the basket and then you get to the till and you realize you've spent 20 quid and you think I only went in for a pint of milk and maybe it's a pack of biscuits and the reality is that in those moments we can get distracted from the real reason that we are there for that one pint of milk and as we get into the story um, that we're in in Mark's gospel tonight I want to encourage you not to get distracted from the real reason that we are here the real reason is Jesus and uh, this passage can quite easily distract us from the real reason and so let's look at the real reason tonight together let's not get distracted so we're in Mark chapter 5, we're in verse 1 to 20. It's going to come up on the screen. Ta-da! Can everyone read that? Can you read it at the back? Just for feedback, so if needs be, I can always up my font size. Um, all right, we are going to be looking at Jesus restores a demon-possessed man. All right. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. 
So the man went away and began to tell the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we want to ask that you would increase your presence amongst us. We thank you that you're already in this place. Thank you for that sweet time of worship that we're able to praise you and glorify your name. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we open your word tonight, your living, breathing word, that I would glorify your name. But Lord, that we would hear your truth, that we would hear your freedom in these pages tonight. And Lord, that you would do a work in us that is undeniably you. That it would carry us through not only weeks, but years and seasons of our lives to come. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So before we get into the nitty-gritty of uh, the passage, I just want to tackle two quick things. The first is the wider context of the passage in light of the Gospel of Mark. And the second thing is the question of demon possession. And uh, so the first thing that I want to um, tackle is uh, this. <coughs> the fact is that we are in the entirety of the Gospel of Mark. That's a series that we're in. And in the uh, events that have happened in the last couple of days in this passage, so we've had Jesus uh, calming the storm in the boat on the Lake of uh, Lake Sea of Galilee. It's a sea, isn't it? Sea, yes. Uh, <laughs> a body of water. And um, then he goes across uh, this body of water uh, to the Gerasenes and uh, heals a demon-possessed man. And then he comes back again and heals Jairus' daughter. And we're going to be looking at Jairus' uh, daughter and uh, the resurrection of her next week. Um, but it's really important that we look at this passage in light of the wider context. Because right throughout Mark's gospel, there is this theme of who is Jesus? What is he doing? Who is he? What, does, um, what is he bringing to us as a people? But also this question of authority and identity. And so we've seen Jesus calm the storm. And in that moment, he's showing his authority over the elements, over the physical, um, sorry, over the external we see Jesus heal the demon-possessed man, and so we see his authority over the demonic and over um, the spiritual. We see Jesus then heal Jairus' daughter. We see his uh, authority over illness, over the physical, and we see him raise her from death to life. So we see his authority over the eternal, over life itself. And so it's really important that when we look at this passage that we see it in the context of Jesus' authority. And so that when we're in this and when we're looking at it and when we see some of the maybe it's more like tricky parts of this passage, that we remember the real reason that we're here. Jesus has authority over absolutely everything. The second thing is the topic of possession. Now C.S. Lewis in his Screwtape Letters wrote this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And the reality is that devils, demons, the spiritual is all across the scriptures. And often we feel really uncomfortable talking about them. 
But what we need to hear this evening before we go any further is if you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior uh, here this evening, then you are not demon-possessed or at risk of demon possession. And I can say that because of a couple of things. One, in 1 John verse 4, it says this, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And there are no accounts of believers in the New Testament where they have been possessed by demons. And that's for, again, a number of reasons. Firstly, we're marked by a new creation in Christ. So we're made new when we accept Jesus into our lives. Secondly, we're marked by his Holy Spirit. Our bodies become a temple for his Holy Spirit. And so the living, breathing God is within us. And where he uh, resides, nothing else can reside. In Romans 8, it says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not demons, uh, sorry, not angels or principalities. Nothing can separate us. And the truth is, we have been rescued from darkness and the hold of sin, and we've been set free in Christ Jesus. And so sometimes it feels like we're maybe feeling oppression, or we're feeling like this thing's like kind of, um, kind of relentless getting at us, but that's different to possession. It's also important to say that if you aren't a Christian here, that also doesn't mean that you're in that category either. It's not as clear-cut as that, but if we are starting to delve into that territory of the demonic and all of that, that's when we get on dangerous, tricky ground. But it's important that we don't get distracted by that. There's a context to why this man is the way that he is, why there's an intensity of the hold of the enemy that the enemy has on him. So, we can all breathe in. And breathe out. More, some more than others, I'm bunged up. <laughs> oh, thanks. So, my first point is, no one can, only he can. <clears throat> now, there is a moment in parties where it's, it, a question is asked and it completely splits the room. And it's a question of, do you have a party trick? And there are a bunch of people in the room at that moment who are thinking, yes. This is my moment to shine. I've been waiting for this moment for a long time. I don't care if there's six people in the room. This is my moment where I'm going to show my pie trick. Has anyone here got a pie trick? Oh, what? <laughs> One, two, okay. An appropriate pie trick. <laughs> this morning I asked if anyone had a pie trick, and someone said that they could do an impression of a sloth. <laughs> I don't know if that's a pie trick. Uh, someone could actually touch their nose with their tongue. Yeah, no. It's weird. Um, but then <laughs> um, I am of the opposite category where if someone asks uh, if there's a pie trick, I just kind of retreat within myself and just hope that they don't ask me again because I don't have a pie trick. For the amount of years I've had in this world, I've never found a pie trick. So if anyone can give me one at the end of the service, much appreciated. But the reality is the humble party trick is um, meant to be a moment where you are the only person in the room where you can do that one thing. And it brings awe and it brings wonder and people are like, yes a hero. In this passage, Jesus is the only one that can do what he can do. And it's not a party trick, but it's a demonstration of a gift that only he as the son of God um, can operate in. Only he has authority in. And it's something that he gives us authority to do in future years to come, but it's something that ultimately rests with him as a son of God. He is the authority. He is the only one that can no one could bind him anymore, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. See, the law couldn't stop this man. The 
farmers, the people of the town couldn't stop him, couldn't bind him. They couldn't prevent his pain or they couldn't prevent his torment or help him with his situation. He was cast out and he was feared. No one could deal with the situation. Only Jesus could deal with the situation. You see, the context to this is that the Gerasenes had been taken over by Roman rule. And so it wasn't Jewish land, hence them keeping a lot of pigs. Um, but the Roman armies had taken over the cities prior to Jesus being there, and thousands of men would have descended on that place and would have crushed a lot of what was there. And there would have been torment, and there would have been uh, intimidation. And so the people would not have wanted these Roman armies to be there. And whenever they got in the way of them, they would have been crushed. And so this man, completely controlled by an army of the enemy, crushed, tormented, and in pain, not only highlights his own situation, but highlights kind of the context in which the cities were also feeling. And so they would have wanted nothing more than for the Roman armies to be cast into the sea, away from their livelihoods and families. Because for them, the Roman armies were powerful and they were relentless and they were large in number and the people would have just submitted to the fact that they were there. And sometimes I wonder for us if we're similar like that, that we realize that maybe the enemy is a bit relentless and he feels powerful. He feels like he's just always going to be there so we just submit to the fact that that's always going to be the case. It's not, it doesn't have to be. Jesus shows up and casts the legions out of a man and restores him to full health again. He brings him freedom and he brings him restoration with just a few exchange of words and his power and his presence. No one had been able to push those Roman legions back. No one had been able to bind or hold the man possessed by the enemy, yet Jesus could. No one could, but he could. And what I love is that this is just a small part of the masterpiece of the bigger picture of Mark's gospel, and in, in fact, the entirety of the gospels, because Jesus takes it to the next level as he moves towards the cross. Jesus, our beautiful Jesus, outcast and isolated, naked and beaten, hung on a cross, while the Romans lash him and torture him, beating him, and piercing him. Jesus, Son of God, coming to share in the torture of his people, allowing the enemy to throw everything at him and to take the fullness of evil upon himself so that we wouldn't have to. No one can, only Jesus can. Because he finished it. He completed it. He stopped the power of death, the power of Satan, and he took the victory for us. That's something that we couldn't do for ourselves. Only Jesus could do. Why? Because he came not just for the people in front of him, but for the entirety of the human race, for you and for I. And he knew that we needed that victory. And so when we face things that we can't handle, when we feel like the enemy is on our case, when we feel like we've been to every available source and resource that we can think of, there is only one who can, the almighty Jesus. We've seen him, he commands the wind and the waves. He can send the darkness packing. He can heal our hearts, our minds, our bodies, and he can raise from death to life. No one else, only Jesus. And so, just ask the question of us all tonight, what are the things in our lives that we feel like no one else can help? 
so often it can feel really difficult to come to God with some of the big things, some of the things that just feel relentless. But can I ask you, are we bringing it to God? Are we continually bringing it to God? Because when all else fails, he doesn't. When no one can, Jesus can. Secondly, he goes after the one. I feel like the gospel is a little bit like a locket in simplistic terms. You're drawn to the beauty and the preciousness of the locket, the gold, uh, whatever it, it's made of. And then once it's open, there's a picture inside. And a picture tells a story, doesn't it? It tells what's going on inside. And often it's of somebody dear to the person wearing it. And I think that Jesus is like that locket. We're drawn to him. We're drawn to his beauty and to his splendor. But as we look closer at the person of Jesus, we see the stories of the people that he has loved, he has transformed, the story of his life and those he has touched. And so we see the big picture of what's going on in this passage, but we also see the small detail as well. And what I love about that is that Jesus always goes after the one. Has anyone been to the new uh, 4DX showings at the cinema? The same happened this morning. I would encourage you to go unless you're pregnant. Uh, so Chris and I booked on <coughs> to go to the cinema on Friday night, and uh, we were excited. And to be honest, I don't fully knew. I'd, I was just like, yeah, we'll go to the cinema. Let's go as much as we can before June. And um, we rocked a popcorn, Coke in hand. And uh, before we got in, there was just this sign, and it said suitable for and not suitable for. And I fell into the not suitable for character category and I was like I wonder why pregnant people can't go in maybe I don't know didn't know what to expect so we went in and we sat down on these seats <laughs> I will <laughs> I say this I don't just put the heart you know my baby at harm I was just like we'll see what it's like we can always leave <laughs> anyways so we went in and um there's like smoke machines and wind machines and snow machines and there's an option to have water on as well. I turned the water off. I was like, I'm not getting soaked in this cinema. And uh, you get your 3D glasses and you sit down. So we're there to watch the Maze Runner on the Maze Runner Part 3. I can't remember what it's actually called. But we were there to watch that. And so the film started and all of a sudden vibrations are coming through the chair and you're kind of moving around and I was like, mm, this is not starting very well. And then smells start coming at you. I mean, I'm bunged up, but Chris was like, something smells. And I don't think it was the people around us. I think it was actually the smells and uh, there was wind like flying past you and everything and I was like mm, this is just not going to work out um, so we ended up leaving but we did manage to catch about 15 minutes of the film and uh, <laughs> before we left and the film does anyone know the maze runner yes 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 <laughs> avid fan um, I'm not going to spoil anything um, but uh, Thomas the main character um, is right at the beginning of the film and he's with the leader of the army uh, who is trying to rescue a bunch of these uh, people who are being, I don't, don't want to give too much away, but used in order to uh, save the human race. And so uh, Thomas goes on this rescue mission. He rescues a whole bunch of people and uh, they get them to safety. But then he realizes that his pal's not there and he's like, oh, that kind of sucks. So he says to the leader of the army, he's like, I need to go back for my friend. And he's like, no, but we're going to this safe place or we're going to start completely over afresh again. And so 
Uh, Thomas says, no, I'm going to go after my friend. And what Thomas doesn't realize is that his friend is being tortured and his friend is being uh, beaten up. And basically, uh, Thomas doesn't know whether he's going to find his friend alive or not. But he risks his entire life in order that he would get his friend. Out of the hundreds that he's rescued, he risks it all for the one. And we saw that after 15 minutes. I don't know what that tells you about the film, but I'm sure that's the entirety of the plot of the film. But... Jesus always goes after the one. No matter the state of the person, no matter the circumstances, Jesus always goes back for the one. And there's no direct explanation for the events of those few days. You know, Jesus taking the disciples across the water, staying just for a little bit in the garrisons, and then coming back. But what we do know is that Jesus isn't phased by numbers. He doesn't sit and add up whether he should risk it all for the one or for the many. He is completely sold out for the individual, and he is completely sold out for the many. And right throughout the Gospels, we see these moments where Jesus stops for the one. He stops and talks to the lady at the well. He stops and prevents a stoning of the lady who's been caught having an affair. He allows the woman in the feast to pour her oil over him. He stops for the woman who touches his cloak. He stops for the blind man on the side of the road, and he stops for the tax collector, Zacchaeus. In each situation, these people would have been outcasts, or they would have been shunned in some way, shape, or form, and some of them even deemed unclean. Yet Jesus stopped and went after the one. He didn't worry about their situation. He didn't worry about what others were thinking of him. But he gave himself, and he loved the person in front of him. He gave them dignity, he gave them freedom, he gave them mercy, and most importantly, he gave them himself. And there are two things that we can ask ourselves in light of that. One, are we modeling ourselves and what Jesus is doing here? Are we going after the one? But also secondly, do we need to be reminded of the truth that we are the one? See, we are to go after the last, the least and the lost. And I shared this kind of last September time as part of the vision of Guilt Park, is that I believe that Guilt Park is being awakened for a new season in God's kingdom. And I believe that one of the ways that we're going to see that awakening is by going after the last and the least and the lost, because that's at the very core of who Jesus is. And so we are, are we allowing God to transform us more and more into the image of him so that we can begin to show that to those around us? Do we go after the one? Do we go after the person that everybody else shuts out? Or the one that's maybe a little bit weird at the desk next to you? Or the one that thinks they have it all together, but really underneath that mask is crumbling beneath it all? Or the one who's maybe even counted themselves out of life? Jesus went after the one. He went after the outcast, and he went after the unclean. And can I suggest, it can be so difficult, that the main question that stops us in these moments is what will people think? But can I suggest in the most pastoral way, this includes me, that we get over ourselves in this moment. Because Jesus has asked us to go after those very people. He's modelled it himself. And that's our call as well. And so sometimes that might be a little bit of a risk. You know, your colleagues are like, oh, it's a bit of a weird one. Why are you spending time with them? Why are you taking them out for lunch? Why are you, you know, spending a whole bunch of time and money with that person? Or maybe it's your family's asking the question of, why have you brought somebody into your life who's got a whole bunch of lifestyle stuff going on? That's odd. Sometimes we have to risk things. 
to go after the one. But that's what Jesus does. It says in Luke 15, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Love that. It's a rhetorical question, but it demands the answer, yes. Secondly, you know, perhaps we are sitting here this evening and we have put ourselves in this man's shoes and we've deemed ourselves unclean. We've deemed ourselves unworthy, unsafe, or unlovable. Yet today, I do believe that God is highlighting his unwavering desire to go after you, to seek you out, to offer healing, his freedom, his mercy, and his love. See, one of the greatest weapons that the enemy has in his arsenal is doubt. Doubt of who we are and doubt of who God is. Yet the truth of the matter is nothing can separate us from the love of God. Absolutely nothing. Jesus goes after the one and he will go after you. And I do wonder if because you've almost placed yourself in this man's shoes, you just see yourself in the graveyard, you see yourself in the shadows. But I believe that Jesus is calling you out of that place tonight. He's calling you out from the graveyard and into the life, into the light with him. And the beauty of this story is that this man came out of the graveyard and his story was completely transformed by Jesus and he was able to influence so many people. And so what I would encourage you to do is if you are counting yourself out tonight, maybe tonight is a night to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm counting myself in with Jesus. Because when we do that, I believe that Jesus transforms, he renews, and we see amazing things off the back of it. Finally, we have a testimony to share. In verse 19, it says this, Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. See, I don't know about you, but if that had happened to me, I would want nothing more than just to be in the presence of Jesus. I wouldn't want to leave his side. And that's exactly what this man was doing. He was like, I don't want to leave your side. I want to be with you. But Jesus is like, no, I've got bigger plans for you. You have to go and tell your story. That is so important. And the Decapolis was made up of 10 cities. So it was a huge environment. There was so many people there to be told. And as Tom Wright, author and scholar, put it, um, this man was probably kind of the first apostle to the Gentile region, so he's kind of picked Paul to the post in some ways. But the scope of his testimony was absolutely huge, and the results were people were amazed. And whilst we don't necessarily know the direct fruit of what his testimony was, what we do know is that it was important for him to share it. It was a direct moment from Jesus, go and share your testimony, declare of who I am and what I've done. And right throughout scripture, the act and the importance of testimony is everywhere, Old and New Testament. In Psalm 71, it says this, I will declare your righteousness and your salvation every day, though I do not fully understand what the outcome will be. Lord God, I will come in the power of your mighty acts, remembering, remembering your righteousness, yours alone. And in 1 John, it says this, the life was revealed to us and we have seen and testify about it. We declare to you this eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we declare to you so that you too can have fellowship with us. And in Psalms in 35, it says, my tongue will declare your righteousness and praise you all day long. Testimony is important. 
And what we see is this man's life has been completely changed and the trajectory is him now sharing who Jesus is. We live in a world that loves stories. Whatever you think about social media, we've got, do you want some water? Whatever you think about social media, we've got Instagram stories, we've got Snapchat stories, we've got vloggers on YouTube, we've got Humans of New York, we've got the news, we've got stories absolutely everywhere. The reality is, in the world that we live in, people love stories. And we have the greatest story to tell, yet we often find it so hard to share it. And I think if you love sharing your testimony and you do it all the time, brilliant. Please get around people who struggle with that because that's the important part of church, isn't it? That we encourage one another and we guide one another on the things that we find easier than others. And so if you love sharing your testimony, please get alongside people in your small group, whatever. But we do often find it hard and for whatever reason, sometimes you think, well, maybe it doesn't pack a punch. Or um, maybe we're worried about other, what other people will think, that old nugget again. We're not sure how to verbalize it or we don't want to bother people. The list can go on and on. But one of the biggest factors often can be shame. And the man in this story was the very epitome of dirty, outcast and someone to be feared. Yet Jesus broke all of that off him and he was released to share his story of freedom. Now, he could have stopped himself in his tracks and decided, I don't want to share my story because I have to declare what had happened to me before Jesus came in. But he didn't, and he still shared his story anyways because it's about God. It's about bringing glory to God. When I think about my own story after coming to know Jesus, there have been some amazing moments and there have been some not so amazing moments. And there are so many times where I thought, Do you know what, I don't want to share my story because it maybe shows weakness or it shows insecurity or it shows that I don't have it together. But the reality is my testimony of, you know, years of struggle with insecurity or years of struggle with self-harm or years of struggle with depression does not define who I am. But in that moment, it gives an opportunity to say, but you know, in those moments, God is a victor because God brought me out of depression. God healed me from self-harm. God gave me a new identity and enabled me to declare who he is in my life. That is the power of testimony. And each and every single one of us in this room has the power of that testimony in their lives. And so, so often when we feel a little bit shameful about the things that were had, that have gone before, we need to remember that it's not about that. Let's not get distracted by that. But it's about giving glory to God. It's about sharing his goodness, his faithfulness, his victory in our life. And I remember the first time I shared my story about self-harm. And somebody came up to me after the service and said, I've never heard that from the front. But actually tonight I feel able to actually share my own struggle with it. So she's able to share her own struggle, get prayer. And then as a result has been healed from that and is now helping a bunch of other people to get healing from that very struggle. Testimonies are powerful because they point to God and they show what he has done. And they offer an opportunity for people to say, maybe I do want to know a little bit about that Jesus that you talk about. It makes it personal. And Chuck shared last week, he said, you know, that we are to be hallmarked by a grander glossary. And I personally loved his use of vocabulary last week as an English student. 
but it's true. And whilst we might not know of a miracle that's happened in our own lives or in lives of the other people, we have a testimony to share. And so that we can go out and we can share our testimony with the people around us and say, this is who Jesus is. And we want you to come and to experience the person of Jesus, his power and his presence. And let me show you other people who've got great testimonies of him as well. But let's not count ourselves out. Every single one of us has a testimony in some way, shape or form here when we've accepted Jesus into our lives. And so to land on this, and this story, the battle of good and of evil, Jesus demonstrates he is the only one who can win, the only one who can fight on our behalf, that he never leaves us by the side and he always pursues us, he always goes after the one and as a result freedom comes and there's a story to tell. Why don't we stand?